If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to a familiar passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. Um, If you've been a Christian for a number of years, undoubtedly you've heard an assortment of sermons on this text, Isaiah chapter 6. And I just want you to leave it open there for a while, Isaiah chapter 6. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you so very much for who you are. Thank you, Father, that you are God, and besides you there is none other. You're in charge, you're in control, you need nothing. You possess all things, all power, and our very lives are dependent upon you. God, I ask of you in the name of your son that as we embark on this short series, that you will make clear to us what it really means to fear God. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said in my prayer, we are embarking on a new series. We've entitled the series, Awestruck, The Fear of God. Uh, Just let me hopefully, purposely ramble just for a second or two. One of the great tragedies of our times that's uh, taken place, I really believe, in our churches over the last 35, 40, 50 years as we have celebrated grace, and believe me, we need to celebrate the marvelous grace of God. It is rich, it is wonderful, and it is real. But sort of a ba- an unintended blowback from all of that is the downplaying of a concept of an idea that permeates every book of the Bible, both in Old Testament and New Testament, And that is the concept, the idea, the doctrine of the fear of God. Part of our struggle when we talk about the fear of God is that we have this tendency to project on God dysfunction. In other words, because we have been abused by authority figures and because authority figures have abandoned us or authority figures have done certain things to us or, or they've messed over us, uh, uh, we have this dastardly tendency of taking that and projecting that on God. And so then therefore, when we hear the term the fear of God, we think that to fear God means that I'm gonna be abused. Well, the fear of God is not abusive. The fear of God is transformative. And so when we talk about the fear of God, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about abuse. Now, I don't want to move too far away, though, and overcorrect that. We are talking about fear, though. We are talking about fear. Fear that is extracted from dysfunction, but nevertheless, fear. And part of the problem in our culture today, the United States of America was never, ever, ever a Christian nation. Okay, let's let's put that to rest. We were a nation, however, that, that acknowledged God and embraced certain principles that framed our Constitution and all of that. And 
And as a result, because of the acknowledgement of God, there was a sense in which there was a conscious awareness of the fear of God. And part of the problem in our culture that's also manifested in many of our churches is that we no longer fear God. In fact, in fact, in fact, we have so celebrated the individual, so celebrated our truth, and with the, with the expulsion of objective truth from the national discourse, uh, the individual has become the ultimate standard by and through which we judge all things. So there's no longer objective truth, it's just my truth. It is my reality. And if I'm only accountable to myself, then why should I even entertain the concept of the fear of God? Why should I even be troubled with that? And then there's a hyper grace movement that really is not biblical grace, that has so extracted uh, 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 consequences, God's discipline, or the negative results of wrong behavior, that we treat God as if he's some wise old consultant that doesn't hold me accountable. And I really believe that this series, not because I'm giving it, but because of where we are, is very, very, very important. Have you ever stood before something that is so spectacular, so, so enormous, so awe-inspiring, and I'll use this word combination, so wonderfully dangerous that it took your breath away. I remember as a little boy, my first trip to Niagara Falls. And even as a little dude, that's what happened to me as I stood there and watched this water. Nobody talked around me. Or, or maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon and you stood there. And it was actually ridiculous to say anything. Or maybe, maybe you were on a cruise or a ship, you went up the, 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 the inside passage there in Alaska. And you saw those huge glaciers. And those whales breaching in front of the glaciers. It just took your breath away. There was nothing to say. There was profound, nah, even the words appreciation is just too limited. You couldn't articulate what you saw. It was wonder. There was awe. And as I said, what struck you, what struck you also was a tad bit of <coughs> danger. Danger. Well, in this series, I'm going to do three messages, which is woefully inadequate, but three messages around the fear of God. The first message today is I'm going to sort of define, hopefully, define and describe what it is. Actually, Isaiah 6 describes what it is. 
And we've called this Awestruck, which is also the theme of the series. The next message will be what it does or the blessing of fear. The blessing of fear. The Bible speaks of the fear of God in very positive words as if it is an enormous blessing what it does to us. And then the third message will be on how do we nurture it or making his fear our friend. His fear our friend. Now I want you to look on the screen here. Uh, At least 300 times in the Bible the word fear is used in reference to God. Now the word fear is used more than 300 times. But in terms of reference to God, as in the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, or indirect or direct implications, it's mentioned 300 times in the Bible. So just the numbers, just the math ought to grab our attention that this is a pretty big concept in the Bible. Yeah. Let me give you a definition of fear, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a comprehensive sense of awe and profound respect for the majesty and power of God. I I measure those words. It's a comprehensive sense of awe and profound respect for the majesty and power of God. But even that definition is woefully inadequate. Uh, I, I found it very hard in my study, uh, particularly this past week, to, to grab a hold of a definition that fully, fully embraces the weightiness of the concept of the fear of God. And I think we'll, we'll approach that as we walk through the description here in Isaiah chapter 6. It, it is more than just reverence. It's more than that. It's more than just sitting down and being quiet. It is, as I described, standing at the Grand Canyon. It is, as I described, a little boy at Niagara Falls. It is, as I described, looking at these huge glaciers. There's words escape you. You're lost in wonder, and you're also lost in a bit of, dare I say this, terror? Fear, fear. Now, let me talk about the elephant in the room. There are coexisting truths in the Bible. These are not contradictory truths, but they are coexisting truths. What are you talking about? The coexisting truth is the fear of God and the love of God. Don't put them as, 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 as competing truths. They're not competing truths. Don't say one or the other. Uh, uh, no, 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 they belong together. You can't separate the fear of God from the love of God. No more than you can separate the grace of God from God's holiness. Uh, They go together. They're inseparable. Does God love me infinitely? Yes. Am I to fear him? Yes. You said perfect love casts out all fear. Yes, perfect love does cast out fear of man. But love and fear go together. They coexist. God, God, is, God is tender and loving, but he, but he also is to be re- revered, held in awe with an appreciation of his terrorizing power. The best illustration I can think of this, and forgive me for going there, is the movie Kong. Now think about this for a moment. There is a scene in that movie where this young lady is held gently in the powerful hand of Kong. 
Kong is protecting her and holding her, keeping her away from harm, and at the same time, violently destroying that which is coming up against her. That's a picture of the tenderness and the love of God, and at the same time, his amazing power. And I would, I would say to you that you cannot really appreciate the love of God until you understand the nature of God. Any, any emphasis on the love of God that's extracted from the other attributes of God is just some type of warm sentimentality. And you see his love merged with our response to holiness. Uh, we, we come to the conclusion, as James McDonald points out, that God's love is not a pampering love, but a perfecting love that's lodged in who he is. Now, there can be no intimacy with God, by the way. There can be no intimacy with God unless we fear him. Did you know that? Now, the Bible speaks, we're going to get into this later on, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and, and not all, all, all of this stuff. But the classic text is, 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 is Psalm 25, verse 14. Look at it on the screen with me. The text says, for the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. By the way, the Hebrew word translated friendship could have been translated the intimate things of the Lord. Belong to those who fear him. God only discloses his heart to those who hold him in reverential awe and wonder. And if you don't hold God in reverential awe and wonder, you can't get close to his heart. He moves toward those who appreciate who he is and uh, what he is all about. Now, the question is, what happens to us when we encounter God? What should happen to us when we encounter God? Well, in the word, and thus the title of the series, we should be awestruck. We should be awestruck. The lack of reverence about many of us in our approach to Christianity, I just said, is appalling. The lack of wonder, appreciation, and respect for who God is, what he's all about. And when we encounter him, when we enter his presence, our response to God should be that we are awestruck. Each time. Every time. And this is what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I think this description will, will deepen uh, my feeble attempts at trying to, trying to give some type of top-line definition of the fear of the Lord. For it cannot be fully articulated, but it must be felt. And by the way, in this, in this passage of Scripture, there, this, this one narrative, this brief narrative, there are four scenes. Four scenes. And in these four scenes, it moves us. He, he, he talks about what, what Isaiah saw, what Isaiah felt, what Isaiah experienced, and what Isaiah did. This also should be the template of our encounters with the Lord when we encounter God, when we step into his presence. 
We should see something, we should feel something, we should experience something, and we are commissioned to do something. This is also what worship is all about. Worship is not just about the songs, okay? This, I, I wish, we, we need to talk more about that. I, I don't like it. One, one expression is I don't like it is that, uh, let's go to worship first and now we hear the word. No, 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 no. Worship is not, not people up here singing and we're singing, then we sit down and now we listen. The whole thing is worship. We're encountering God. And so we see something, we feel something, we experience something, and we're commissioned to do something. First of all, what did he see? What did he see? The text begins here in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What does Uzziah have to do with all of this? Well, Uzziah reigned in Judah for 52 years, and uh, at least part of that time, Isaiah was a contemporary of Uzziah. What's significant about Uzziah is that God had used Uzziah in extraordinary ways. He had introduced programs to Uzziah that, that, that resulted in peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel. Ironically, Uzziah had experienced revival. He had experienced revival. He experienced the hand and touch of God on his life and on the nation of Judah uh, as never before. God worked in a powerful way. Now, this is going to help somebody here. I'll warn some of us. Don't, don't ever think because God uses you and speaks to you in profound ways that somehow or another you are insulated from being ambushed by pride. You have to be very careful. In fact, the more God uses you, the more intentional we have to be about brokenness. There's this dastardly tendency in all of us that when people respond to what God does through us, we want to make that a permanent line our own resumes. And that's exactly what happened to Uzziah. Uzziah got so full of himself, God had blessed him and used him and blessed him and used him and blessed him and used him and blessed him and used him. He just sort of thought, hey, look, man, ain't nobody else like me. He's going to bless me and use me. He got impatient. He should have waited for the priest to come. He went into the temple to offer sacrifices, and the priest said, don't do this. God called you to be king. He didn't call you to be a priest. And Isaiah said, get out of my way. Don't you know how God used me? Don't you know all this stuff that's going on? And what ends up happening? He was struck with leprosy. He was struck with leprosy. The more God uses you, the more sensitive we need to be concerning pride and arrogance. That's the reason why I get a little bit nervous with this industry phrase of evangelicalism and some of us according power. And I see a lot of pride motivation in many evangelical leaders these days. It's not right. So what happens here? Some scholars say that Isaiah is going into the temple to uh, mourn. I don't, it doesn't say that in the text, but it doesn't say that it didn't happen. Whatever happens, as Isaiah is mourning the loss of Uzziah and his heart is broken, God encounters him. God encounters him. What did Isaiah see? 
Well, in verses 1 through 4, we see that he saw three things. As he walked into the, he saw three things that would forever change him. Number one, he saw the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. It's amazing. There may have been confusion, heartache, and shame on the earth, but there was no shame or failure in heaven. Our glorious God is still on his throne. Even though your heart is broken over the failure of Uzziah, the failure of Christians around you, the failure of people even close to you, the disappointment that we see, how could they say they walk with God? How could they say? How could they disciple me? How could they do all this stuff? And here I find out that they're sleeping around, or here I find out that, that they've got integrity breaches, character breaches, and all of this stuff going on in their hearts and lives. The failure of man does not mean that God has failed. It means that man has failed. And he said, when I went into the temple, I saw the Lord. What was the Lord doing there in the temple? Well, he was doing three things. Number one, he was seated on a throne. <laughs> I saw the Lord seated on a throne. What does that imply? Well, it implies that, that, that he is sovereign and in control. He is unaffected by what's going on around, around the world or around us. Now, he affects that, but he himself is unaffected. God, God is not rattled. His character is not changed. His intentions are not changed. What he wants to do in and through your life is not rattled, not changed. He's still on his throne. And that was a huge message to uh, Isaiah who, who, who admired Uzziah. He saw him seated on his throne. Secondly, what he saw was that he was high and lifted up, meaning that he's beyond all that we are. He's not laden with human frailties and inconsistencies and inadequacies. He's high and lifted up. Thirdly, what else did he see? Well, he saw that his train, that word train in Hebrew actually could have been, could have been translated him. The very hem of his robe filled the temple. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's, it means two things. Number one, royalty and majesty is what he saw. But he also saw that God cannot be contained. And by the way, by the way, this is a little bit of a play on this because in the outer court, the, the, the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, right? Then there was a court of the Gentiles. All of that was considered to be the temple, but here he says the train of his robe fills the temple. Not just the holy of holies, but the whole temple. The implication is you cannot and I cannot contain God. This is one of the other reasons why we ought to be afraid of him, afraid of him fearful in the right sense. Because there's no place we can go from the presence of the Lord. Where are you going to go to hide? That's the reason why sin is so stupid. Excuse the expression. It's so silly. That's why cheating is so silly. It's so stupid. You actually thought that God wasn't in that motel room? You actually thought you wouldn't get away with that? You actually thought God wasn't in that conference room when you told that big lie? Really? The train of his robe filled, filled the temple. So, 
What did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord. What did Isaiah see? Number two, he saw worship. He saw worship. Verse two says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you imagine this vision that Isaiah sees? He's standing there. And God opens his eyes. He sees the Lord sitting on the throne. And then he notices above the throne are these seraphim. Seraphim. Seraphim were specific angelic beings who are ardent in their zeal for the Lord. Now what they did is a picture of what we also should be doing in worship. When we worship is exactly what, we should be doing exactly what the seraphim did. What did they do? Now I don't want to make too much of this, but notice their two wings covered their face. That, that implies humility. No one comes into the presence of the Lord standing up on their own two feet. No one should walk into the presence of the Lord boasting. Whenever we come into the presence of the Lord, we cover our face. Uh, the diversion of your eyes is, is, is an expression of, 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 of sort of... A sort of putting yourself in a right position, that I'm not worthy to look on him. I think that was implied by God when he said to Moses, no, you can't see me, buddy. Don't look on me. So with two wings, they covered their face, a sign of humility. With, With two wings, they covered their feet. That speaks of service. Whenever we encounter God, we're listening for his voice. We're going to see this later on. And we want to serve him. And that's exactly what the seraphim did. And the expression, and they flew. This this is a reference to ongoing activity and proclaiming God's holiness and glory. Whenever we come into the presence of God, whenever, whenever he meets with us and we meet with him, We become emissaries of his glory, ambassadors of his holiness. You see, that's the purpose of mankind is to glorify God. And God is about declaring his glory. But we can't declare his glory until we've been touched by his glory. Too many of us are spectators. We, we study the Bible. We talk about the scriptures. We talk about how to do certain things. But have we met with God? Have we met with him? Do we know his hand? Do we know his voice? Has he touched our souls? Do we have a vision of our awesome God? Or are we more excited about the things that we want to do for him? If it is his purpose to declare his glory, then we need to be touched by his glory. And the danger of Bible church people is that we can be informed and knowledgeable and correct and accurate. 
but never having ever been in the very presence of our glorious God. And this is a portrait. And what do they declare as they go back and forth? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I'm not much into, there are some scholars who are into the meaning of numbers in the Bible and the numbers of perfection and this kind of, you got to be careful with that. Be very careful with that uh, because that can take you to a little unhealthy place. But it is true, the thrice holiness of God. They say this over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Implies utter perfection. Utter perfection. Utter perfection. Now, mind you, Isaiah is in the very presence of God, and he's absorbing all of this. He is struck by it. God is doing something wonderful in his heart and in his life. So what does he see? He sees the Lord. What does he see? He sees worship. What does he see? Thirdly, he sees power and glory. That's what verse 4 is all about. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Oh, the awesome presence and power of God. I would say smoke is a reference to the cloud. To the cloud. Sometimes God made himself known through a cloud. And here Isaiah is feeling this. He's feeling it. He's feeling the rumble of God's presence. He's sensing the aura. of his presence. It's doing something to him. There are three times in my life in which I really believe that I experience authentic revival in terms of a group. In all three of these occurrences, it wasn't planned it was God initiated. The first was when I was about 18 years old, a freshman in college. Uh, a group of us just start praying. We got on campus just at the beginning of the semester, and about three or four of us just start praying. We start praying every night, and it grew from three to four to 20 to 50 to 100, 200, 250 people. It wasn't structured, and we just decided to go through downtown Philadelphia and start sharing the gospel. At that point, there were gang members hanging out on JFK Plaza. And I, this is no exaggeration. I don't know how many we saw come to know Christ, conservatively, a couple of hundred of them. It was a move of the Spirit of God. Second occasion in my life was in 1995. Mark and Debbie was there. It was staff training with Campus Crusade for Christ. 
what, four or 5,000 U.S. staff members were sitting in Moby Gym, going on with the program as normal. Nancy Lee DeMoss Wagamuth now was standing up speaking. This was not planned. And then she came to a point in her message when she began to contrast the characteristics of broken people and proud people. You can ask Mark and Debbie about this. As we're sitting there and she begins to contrast this, you start hearing sniffling and weeping all over that gym. Nobody planned it. And then all of a sudden, people started calmly walking forward to confess sin. This went on for three days. The next experience that I had with revival was the Promise Keepers movement. That was an outpouring of the Spirit of God. It wasn't over-orchestrated. The football coach from Colorado State University had a vision. But what most people don't understand, unless you were on the speaker team or this kind of thing, in order to really understand what happened in those stadiums with 50, 60, 70,000 men and thousands at each one of these events coming to Jesus, and uh, I don't understand that you had to be in the prayer meetings that went on before that. These prayer meetings were incredible. And you sensed that you were a part of something that was bigger than yourself. Now, you can't orchestrate these things. You can't orchestrate that. All of the great revivals of history, you cannot plan it. You cannot orchestrate it. However, on a personal level, we can cultivate our own intimacy with God. And what was true of all those three experiences that I had and all the revivals that I read about, palpable, thick, was a sense of awe and wonder and the fear of God. It's my prayer before the Lord takes me on, I don't know how many years I have here or whatever, before he takes me on that we will experience this here at Fellowship Bible Church the manifest presence of our great, great God. Now, let me just say this. Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, however, there is such a thing, and this is how all of these movements sometimes peter out, is when you start institutionalizing and taking for granted the very presence of God. We see this with the nation of Israel. 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And God's presence and power and provision was with them every single day. I mean, they were led by the cloud. There was no, no question about God was leading them. They were led by the fire. No question that God was leading. And God provided for them every day, manna from heaven. And yet they disintegrated into complaining. Never underestimate the power of carnality. So what happened to Isaiah. What he saw, he saw the Lord, he saw worship, he saw power and glory. What did he feel? What happened to him, though? There are two things that he felt. This is how he responded. 
to the glory of God, to his presence. What happened to him? (laughs) Verse 5 says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Two things happen to Isaiah when he sees the Lord. You don't hear him boasting about all of his prophetic initiatives that he had taken and these great insights that he had written about and the people that he knows and how he influenced Isaiah with these initiatives. And do you understand what group I'm a part of? And I'm the head of the prophetic school there and the president of the school of the prophets. You don't hear any of that. You know how idiotic it is? To boast in the presence of God, when you catch a vision of God, the very first thing that hits him is that he's unworthy. He goes, oh, woe, woe is me. Now you have to understand here, there's no sense of Isaiah living in any protracted sin. But he understood that no matter how good he was compared to other people, it didn't matter. When you see the Lord, you are forever in touch with your imperfections. You realize that you have no right to be self-righteous. You cannot look down your nose and be dismissive of anyone else. You're not concerned about their issues, you're concerned about yours. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am unclean. He, first of all, recognizes that he's unworthy. But then secondly, he says, I'm unclean. He says, I have unclean lips. Often in the Bible, unclean lips represents the expression of our lives, meaning that lips are the product of an unclean heart. Isaiah could not faithfully preach the word of the Lord unless he was prepared and cleansed. This is what I feel. Feel. No one steps into the presence of God in a legitimate, authentic way. No one does. And walks out feeling as if God is really blessed to have me as, their part, as his partner. Nobody feels that way. What he saw, what he felt... And thirdly, what he experienced. It's almost as if God says, that's all I want you to do. I I, I don't want you to grovel in your unworthiness. I don't want you to embrace an unhealthy introspection. Neither do I want you to be mired in a false guilt. But I I want you to be consciously aware, Isaiah. I'm getting ready to use you in significant ways, but listen to me. You need to be consciously aware 
of your ability to screw up. You need to be aware of that. You need to know that because I use you doesn't mean that you're worthy to be used. You need to know that because I use you does not mean that there aren't areas in your life that continue to need to be cleansed. And because he's at this point of brokenness, the angel comes to him. <laughs> the seraphim in verses 6 and 7, they clean him up. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Fire in the Bible has to do with a symbol of deep cleansing and purification. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Oh, when we get into the presence of God and we embrace the fear of God, then he releases his grace. And we only know his grace and his cleansing when we embrace his fear. We know his loving kindness when we appreciate his nature. And that's what happens to Isaiah. So that's what he experienced cleansing, but secondly, he experienced a calling. It's interesting that in embracing this awe and this wonder and fear, God discloses himself. Remember Psalm 25, verse 14, for the fear of the Lord is for those who, the intimate things of the Lord is for those who fear him. So listen to what he says here. After he's cleansed, he says in verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, the word saying there is a historic present. I don't think it, God just began to say. I think he was saying this all along. I just think Isaiah wasn't in a position to hear what God had been saying. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who will go for us? And by the way, it's my view, I don't think God asked the question because he didn't know who would respond. No, he asked the question in order to give Isaiah an opportunity to serve. And whenever we enter the very presence of God and we listen to his voice and we're touched by him. He speaks to us. He speaks to us by his spirit. He speaks to us by his word. He leads us and guides us. Some of us, some of us have question marks about what the Lord wants us to do. But he's not confused about that. Maybe the question is, it's not, not so much, maybe he's allowing us to wallow in that for a while because he's using that as a call to his heart. Maybe what we really need to do is to turn off the cell phones, turn off the computers, get alone with God, bask in his presence, embrace the wonder of his nature. Then perhaps he'll speak to our hearts.
Well, finally, what he saw, what he felt, what he experienced, number four, what he did. So, what are you going to do? You've just seen the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. You've just seen these seraphim going back and forth, declaring the holiness of God. You have fallen on your face before him and cried out, Woe is me. You've received cleansing from him. Now you've heard his voice. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? What did he do? He did two things. Number one, he submitted. He, he, he submitted. You see, when you catch a glimpse of God, somehow the word no doesn't seem to be a good answer. You tell God no. No, that doesn't seem to be a good answer. He says, number one, here I am. That's submission. The fear of God produces grateful service. When you catch a glimpse of who God is, somehow you want to just do what he says. And then he says, send me. That speaks of availability. 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 Are you available to God? If you're not available to God and not willing to say yes to whatever he's saying, I don't think that this is a logical gap here. If you're not available to God and you're not willing to do what he's telling you to do, maybe the fundamental question is, do we fear him? Do we fear him? Do we fear him? Is your life marked by the fear of God? What have you seen? What have you felt? What have you experienced? What are you doing? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In these last days, Hebrews tells us, God has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And we have seen Jesus, and now we want to celebrate. We're going to take just a few minutes as we close our service. We want to celebrate communion. To remind us of what Jesus has done for us and the intimacy that we're to nurture with him. That this same God that Isaiah saw in the temple has come near to us through his darling son, the Lord Jesus, has broken down the middle wall of partition so we can come boldly to the throne of grace, not based upon our strength, but based upon the sacrifice of our Savior. He has come. Thus, Jesus would institute this in the Last Supper when he says, 
each time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth my death and you remember me.